Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Dom Einhorn, who is a serial entrepreneur, ecosystem leader and a builder in France. And we're going to find out more about how he built his businesses from e-commerce to digital marketing, how he helps startups. And he actually runs the world's largest rural incubator and accelerator. So we'll find out what the advantages are set up in Sarlat, right? And, and of course, he actually ventured into platform business for sports. So we're going to talk about this as well, the economics behind it, how can amateur teams grow to be professional in rugby in France, and how can this be commercially viable. So thank you very much, Dom, for joining. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks, Rudy, for having me. Great stuff. So Dom, you founded several businesses. I already alluded to it from e-commerce to digital marketing. So tell us about your first steps. It's easy to talk about the big successes when you first got an idea and got some first clients. How did that go? Not too well. And I think that's like uh, what most uh, journeys, entrepreneurial journeys have in common is that you tend to stumble a lot before uh, you find your first success. So for me, it all started back in 1993 when I moved to the US from France. I very quickly launched a digital marketing company in 1993 when way before it became fashionable to do. And we built websites on behalf of businesses, companies, before websites were commonplace, before businesses actually realized that they needed a website. So in many ways, it was like selling ice to Eskimos. But very quick, we came up with uh, what I call the rule of 33. It took me 33 contacts to get a new client. And uh, once you know your math, it becomes a lot easier. All right. Wow. And how did you scale them up? Yeah, so like any scaling initiative, it all starts with one at first. I, I was the sole, single sole a salesperson. Once I found out, knew what the rejections were, knew what the general uh, Q&A was, I'd say it took me about six months before I hired my first salesperson outside of my, and then we scaled from there. We went from one to two to five to 10 to 20, eventually we're 105. I guess the message here I would hear is also uh, build a team around yourself, right? Yeah, no question. And actually find out what your math is before you actually do scale. I think what we've all seen in our journeys as either angel investors or entrepreneurs is the the willingness sometimes to scale too fast before you actually have the real granular data that you need to make the right decision. I would recommend against that. Find out what works on a one-off basis and then slowly scale from there. And once you really have your math down, you can scale up more rapidly. So you came back from the US to France and have you've had many activities there. One of them is the unicorn, which is, as you label it, the world's largest rural incubator and accelerator. It's true. Most of them are in the city. So you're on the countryside of France. And is it about proximity to wine, champagne and the cheese? Or what is the (laughs) unique selling advantage there? I think the unique uh, advantage is uh, peace of mind. The ability today 
which wasn't obviously possible 20 years ago, maybe not even 10 years ago, to work from anywhere as efficiently, if not more efficiently than a big... My commute takes me 15 seconds every morning, <laughs> a little bit more than that, but no more than two minutes in terms of commute. In Los Angeles, sometimes it took me three hours of productive time when you wake up in the morning and you actually have to go to your office. It was a lifestyle show is first and foremost. Didn't want to replicate the mistakes I'd made in the past. And I was literally looking for, no pun intended, greener pastures. And uh, we found that we made the choice, the deliberate choice to go into a rural area. We're in Sala, France, southwest of France in the Dordogne department, which is the most rural department in France. And uh, over the last three years, we've demonstrated that not only can you perform from here, but you can outperform from here. We're today roughly 60 people from around the world from 27 different nationalities. Oh, wow. So... How do you get there, though, if you ever need to travel? Maybe we all live in Metaverse, so we don't need to leave the house ever. But how do you get to Sarlat and how do you, how do you go back to, let's say, Paris? Yeah, but so if you're coming from, from outside of France, the easiest way would be Bordeaux or Toulouse. We're like in the middle between the two uh, cities. And then it's a quick train ride from either city to, to Sarlat. It's a... We're amazing lifestyle. We have more, a higher density of medieval castles in a 25-mile radius than anywhere else in the world. There are over a thousand castles within a 25-mile radius. So it, the journey itself is very nice. It's, there's no direct connection by flight. You have, to do, you have to take a train or you have to take a rental car, which actually makes it somewhat more unique as well because we're not being overrun, although we do have two and a half million tourists a year in a town of 10,000 people. Oh, wow. Amazing. One, one more thing to add to, to your bucket lists, uh, everyone. So fair enough. Now, obviously, you are helping the founders to get off the ground. So maybe one key advice, because that's maybe quite challenging to do in Europe, even though we've seen the record numbers of fundraising, especially for fintech this year. But still, this hasn't been as easy as in the US for the past few years. Can you give any advice to founders raising money in France? What to watch out for and where to focus? Yeah, I think what you're seeing in France and in most parts of Europe is like a reverse trend uh, than what you're seeing in the US, where if you're a startup entrepreneur, early stage startup, in France in particular, you'll find quite a bit of help. You have public and private money in small sums that's relatively easy to access. In the US, you don't have any of that. So in the US, you're left on your own. The downside is that in France, once you actually are beyond the initial startup stage, it becomes more difficult, at least historically speaking, has become more difficult finding larger sums uh, of, of investment, especially VC funds. Whereas in the US, if you have a proof of concept uh, and you scale, you find it with relative ease. But I think even on that stage, things have become a lot more easy, a lot easier in France, a lot more efficient where we now do see significant fundraisers in the hundreds of millions of euros for French startups. And I think what we're witnessing is a sense of a democratization of the fundraising process where, again, historically, if I go back 20 years, if you weren't in Silicon Valley, your chances of raising any money were almost slim to none. And today you can be in the southwest of France, you can be an African startup and still raise significant sums. With relative that's also probably a function of working from home working remotely people realize sometimes that uh, they don't need to fly half across the planet to spend four hours with someone to decide whether they have a good idea or not but that's how it used to be yeah no question i think obviously the upside of covid is that it has forced us all to become more efficient and use tools that we may not have used on a day-to-day -day basis. We have clients, for example, that are skewing somewhat ager 
uh, somewhat more older, I, I wanted to say 60, 65 years old, some of them over 70 years old, that used to travel from Los Angeles to New York sometimes once a week, they will never do it again because they realized that they could be just as efficient or more efficient doing it, doing it remotely on Google Meet, on Zoom. And I think it's become a dramatic, dramatic seaside change in, in, in improving overall productivity for us all, making it a lot easier to systematically connect like we're connecting. Now, let's talk on to events because that event business has been also quite transformed by the pandemic. And first you had virtual events, uh, now maybe hybrid. You organized the startup Super Cup. So what were the key themes emerging from this year's edition? Yeah, it was our first edition. Uh, so a lot of work went into creating that event. Initially, we wanted to do a large-scale event, 500 to 1,000 people. Because of COVID, we downsized it significantly. We had roughly 100 people from around the world. It made it also more impactful. We had seven startups presenting from around the world. The rest were all investors. So we had a nice ratio of about 15, 15 to 17 investors per startup. Some of the investors were already invested in some of the startups that were presenting, but were meeting them for the first time. So the focus was over a two-day period of time to let these startups pitch on stage and let them congregate with the investment community, both retail investors and institutional investors. I'd say the takeaway was a resounding success as a result of the event actually being smaller, we were able to create uh, deeper and more meaningful connections between the uh, the fundraisers, the startups, and the investors that were present. So it was more about matchmaking than long speeches or keynotes. Yeah, it actually, exactly. It ended up being a matchmaking, almost like a dating process. This time around, the startups did present. They each had half an hour on stage, but then there was an, a, a lot of quality time as a result of the smaller size of the event for these, these startup entrepreneurs to engage with the investment community offstage later on. All right, brilliant. So let's talk about your latest passion, sports business. Tell us about what you do in this and why you started with this. And then secondly, of course, how do you take a sports franchise that is amateur to professional level? Yeah, that's probably the, the most exciting uh, chapter of my life. I'm over 50 years old now. I've had, some, I've had a few chapters, but this one is probably the one that's really driving me most these days. Is when I moved back to France uh, from the US in 2018, I initially became director of marketing for the local rugby team, Salah Rugby Team. And uh, in the early innings of uh, COVID in March of 2020, decided to take over the team because the team was struggling financially. So there was a, an investment made into the team. We completely restructured the team from ground up. The team was founded in 1903, so it's 118 years old. Internally, tongue-in-cheek, we call it a 118-year-old startup because an amateur sports team, like most other amateur sports teams, are roughly 3.7 million amateur sports teams in the world. They all face similar challenges, especially during COVID, you can imagine, with no games being played, no no money coming in and still all the money going out that a lot of these teams are today struggling. So what we decided to do is we used the blueprint that we built for Salah Rugby, which allowed us to our revenues during COVID with no games being played and use that blueprint to create a platform called Challenger X that we are now offering to other amateur sports teams around the world on a sports agnostic and a language agnostic basis. And uh, Challenger X will is a soon-to-be publicly traded company in London and in uh, and in Germany. It will be listed on the Aquis Exchange in London and on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange before Christmas. It's taken a life on its own because the demand in that marketplace is so big 
it's uh, almost unfathomable. The sports business sector as a whole is roughly, represents roughly 800 billion in spending a year. But what's really interesting and what most people do not know is that only 300 billion is being spent by professional sports teams and almost 500 billion is spent by amateur sports teams. Most people wrongly assume that there is no money in amateur sports when in fact there, it's a half a trillion dollar industry a year. All right, great. So let's explain this a little bit though, because you said it's a platform for amateur sports. So platforms are usually at least two-sided markets. So who is who spends what and on what side are the amateur amateur teams and then who is on the other side? Yeah, so the core, the core competency of the platform is to increase monetization. Uh, so rather than being a, an incremental product or service supplier to the industry and coming using a typical SaaS model where you on one side have a, a product or a service, on the other side you have a buyer, our approach is slightly different than that. We do have, we did build a SaaS-based platform, but it's 100% performance-based. So a concrete example would be we're building direct integrations for these amateur teams with sports books around the world because what happens today is that on one side you have a sports book and the other side you may have a media feed a, a social media profile for a team uh, a team's website or even a player website and the two universes are not connected at all so we built a piece of middleware that allows a an athlete a team a sports influencer to directly connect with a sports book by building an, a, a piece of middleware that's an odds feed that we control, which today allows us to empower literally every social media profile, every sports website with a monetization vehicle that allows them to make money from sports books, which historically was not possible. That's one example. So, so in terms of sports books, so do I understand it right that you're basically helping the amateur teams to feed content to the bookmakers? Yeah. So the if we zoom out a little bit and we take a look at one, one of the biggest problems today on social media, you will see that if you're a small influencer or a large influencer, you're publishing content on a regular basis. That content typically comes at a cost. If you're taking pictures, at least you're going to spend some gas costs to go from point A to point B, or you might have some production costs if you're a larger influencer. And in most cases, it's the social network that earns the advertising revenue and the influencer gets nothing or very little out of it. So that's the problem. The fix to that problem for us in the sports tech space is to make it so that every time an athlete or a team publishes a piece of content, be it on social media, on their website or elsewhere in digital form, we will tag along a snippet of code. It could be, in some cases, it's a WordPress plugin that allows them to systematically monetize what they're putting out at scale. And that's the real name of the game because whether you're an athlete or a team, specifically in the amateur or the semi-professional space, your biggest challenge is monetization, is to build incremental revenue streams so that you can actually grow your brand, so that you actually have the means to hire better players, which is what we did for Salah Rugby. We started the season, we went in initially as a branding company, completely rebranding the team from the ground up. And today we're 9-0 and in the new seasons. We have nine victories in a row. And that came by way of basically generating incremental revenue. That incremental revenue allowed us to hire better players, hire better staff, improve our infrastructure, give more additional means to our rugby school to be performing at a higher level. And today, the numbers speak for themselves. We're now in the new season. 
All right, so you create the link for your team and that link is sold to an advertiser directly competing with Google Ads or well that could that what, te what's te happening here? technically could be done what we're doing today is a lot more organic it basically recognizes the content that you're putting out let's take a very concrete example you have a player for a team that kicks field goals uh, be it in rugby or in american football and that's the content that he puts out on a daily basis anyway however today whenever he puts out that content he's actually not getting anything out of it he's publishing he's promoting his own brand but facebook tiktok instagram twitter is making the money monetizing his content on his behalf without giving anything in terms of contribution back to that athlete. That's the fundamental problem that we're looking to solve on a one-off basis. So we're coming in and we're telling this influencer, look, continue producing the content that you produce already because it's engaging. That's why you have, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of followers, potentially a million, millions. And what we're giving you is we're giving you a simple snippet of code to tag along with each post. When people click on that code, they may say something like brought to you by this brand. And now you have a monetization vehicle that is scalable, that you can systematically build into every single message that you put out. So essentially, you now have a sponsor for every piece of content that you put out, bypassing the Facebook gates, the Twitter gates, the Instagram gates, which are not meant to monetize your influence. They're monetizing your influence against your own will. They do pay you, but you need to reach a certain scale. So I think what you're doing here is that for amateur sports, you often don't get to that scale. Why should they you do get pay nothing? You. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They do pay you in, in, in certain very specific scenarios and instances like, like YouTube profiles, right? Yeah. But the average athlete, the average team that's putting out content on Instagram or on Facebook or on TikTok gets absolutely nothing out of it. In fact, the, there's less than 1% of these influencers that actually have a paid relationship with the social networks when the mass of all the content that's being generated is produced by the 99% that are getting absolutely nothing out of it. Right. So it's managing that long tail. A lot of people then would immediately jump and say, do you need blockchain for this or NFTs, things like this? Yeah. It sounds like not necessarily. You could do the same thing with NFTs. So we're actually building an NFT platform as we speak. And, but the, the concept remains the same. The reason why we're building an NFT platform is to allow that monetization so that if you're an athlete, you now will have a special moment on a website sellable as an NFT. And because people are already familiar with your brand, the tag along, the promotional tag along that we will give you once you post a new piece of content may actually lead to your NFT. So you can actually monetize your engagement and your followers versus somebody else doing it on your behalf. Right. And then on the other side, when you mentioned there would be sponsors, really, you know, that you would see this was brought to you by X, Y, and Z. In amateur sports, generally, these sponsors would be local, small, and medium-sized businesses. So it could be Absolutely. big sports brand, equipment, things like this. So who are they in your case so far? So in our case, our first foray, our first objective has been to build two things. Number one, the sportsbook integration, which I just described to you, where we have over the last 15, 20 years worked with every sportsbook brand around the world. So we can do it on a global basis in all the countries in which sportsbooks are legal, where sports betting is legal, and where we have relationships with legally licensed sportsbooks within those jurisdictions. The other thing we've done is we've built a wholesale affiliate program that today has been embedded into a browser extension 
and the browser extension is a wide label browser extension that we deliver to each team that we work with. So you have an amateur team, we build a browser extension, that browser extension is a one-time download, one-second download, set and forget. Every time they go to a participating merchant in their country, be it Amazon, Dell Computers, regardless of where you are, the affiliate transaction becomes the fundraising profit for the team. The great thing about that is that it's at no cost to the team, it's at no cost to the fan, it's the merchant that actually supports this process. So concrete example, you go on Amazon, you buy a product for $100, 100 euros, there's roughly a 5% affiliate commission being paid. That 5% costs you nothing, the fan, but you're now raising five euros for your favorite team. Right. And of course, you started with your favorite team, but of course, and you have the yeah. tools, you have the experience, and uh, now you're going to go public. So how did you build that platform? How did you go from team one to more teams, etc.? Because one thing is to have the tool. Yes, if you do put it on YouTube and you don't promote it, again, nothing will probably happen unless you put dogs there or something, something else, right? Yeah, yeah. So we go right back to the question you asked me at the onset of this podcast mm. is everything that we do on a one-off basis first. So our own team has very much served as the test bed. The trial and error is all being done. It's almost like our own testing lab that we have with Solar Rugby, where we try any given month at least five, sometimes 10 different initiatives. We see what works, what doesn't work, but we constantly iterate, we constantly try. Everything before we scale it has been tested at Salah Rugby. And once we see success on a one-off basis, we then take that concept to two, three, four, five teams, which we've done. Then we realize, okay, it starts to work for a number of teams, at which point in time we decide to then really scale it. So with the sportsbook integration, the the feedback was uh, tremendous. We could see numbers very quickly, and really we knew we were onto something. But very often we also have losers. We test certain items, we test certain initiatives, and they just don't work. But rather than doing them at scale, we're doing them on a one-off basis, which is a lot cheaper to fail. All right, wonderful. So how did you finance the development of the platform so far, and how do you want to ultimately make money out of this? So the initial financing was uh, was self-financed by myself. Then we did a small seed round of a million euros, which with the people that we have in our Rolodex took two or three hours and a few phone calls. Uh, it's the advantage of being in the space for quite a long time. Now we're going to market specifically, to public markets specifically, to allow us to raise larger sums. We probably raised between five and 10 million euros in Q1 of 2022 to allow us to scale to several thousand teams. We'll probably be at around the 100 team mark by the end of January. Uh, and the idea is to get to uh, 5,000 by the end of 2022. All right. Sounds amazing. So are you focused just on rugby or other sports as well? No, completely sports agnostic. So we already work with a number of football teams. We have a handball team. We've been approached by cricket teams, by badminton teams, basketball, you, you name it. So everything that we've done is it's done on a, both on a language agnostic basis, which means we can do it globally, as well as on a sports agnostic basis. It will just as, just as well for cricket as it will for football, as long as there's a, obviously a following for the team. We do work with smaller teams as well that have a small following, but we help them grow that following the same way we did for our own team, Salah Rugby. When I initially took on the project that's in Salah, the rugby team, we had 1,500 followers on Facebook. Today, we have 150,000, and that's 16 months later. 
All right, maybe one other question about the potential the sponsors, right? So you said sports books or sports betting companies where it's legal. Unfortunately, in Switzerland, or fortunately, it depends on your point of view. It's not legal in Switzerland unless also if you go to horse racing, you can do this in San Moritz, you know, on site, but not online. See, many, um, but, it, that's interesting because in many countries, it's the opposite. It's legal off site. It's not legal on site. Yeah, so I, I don't know the rationale for this. Of course, in the UK, it is a, it's a big thing. You can bet on anything, but there were ebbs and flows in the regulation. Yeah. And I think the last few years, they put a support uh, system around it. So if you do become, for example, addicted and things like this, what can you do to get out of it? But the what the creators of content for which are also sports people are trying to do in many countries is to consolidate, right? Mm. So they can uh, negotiate with the bookmakers better terms because otherwise they're too fragmented on one side and then you have the very big ones on the other side. So how did those negotiations with the betting companies go for you? Very well, because again, we've worked with them for some of them for over 20 years. So we've always been close to the to the sector, the industry. We've always worked in some shape or form with or for them. So again, what a, what a sports book or any merchant for that matter is interested in is incremental customer acquisition uh, that does not cannibalize what they're currently doing. And we see that as the largest untapped opportunity in terms of leveraging what we call low P, leveraging other people's influence, uh, seeing that today 99% of the media that's being produced, the content that's produced on social media is not being sponsored for the content creator, but uh, usually against the content creator with data extraction, monetizing someone's influence on their behalf, very often without that knowledge, we believe that is a huge problem that that needs to be fixed and we're actively working on doing so maybe one last question or pet question for me because i read an article recently that says that look people forget about worrying about your websites anymore because nowadays the people are so overloaded that uh, really only the content that you put on platforms is relevant and to try to worry about seos etc it's pointless and i know you started with building websites when maybe this was original and cool and not everybody had a website. Now, some people have two or three websites. What's your view on this? That's why do you focus on alternative ways how to deal with the platforms uh, or websites will still have a role beyond, of course, just having a digital business card? Yeah, I think depending on the structure of the website. So if I take a look at our Solo Rugby website, we built four websites in English, French, German, and Spanish. Obviously, the French, for, with us being in France, gets the most traffic. That traffic represents about forty to 50,000 people a month now. It's certainly not something to frown upon. I think that there's definitely a place for websites. I would not recommend that a brand puts all their eggs in one basket because even though you may have most of your traffic coming by way of uh, Instagram or Facebook, these are not your platforms. Uh, the, the grass can be cut from underneath you from one day to another for whatever reason. I think it's very dangerous to relocate all of your content, all of your traffic into one single location that you do not control because you're not the rights mm -hmm. holder. I would very strongly advise against that. The approach that we're taking is more of a holistic approach where we leave no stone unturned. We identify, obviously, opportunities. Those opportunities as a digital marketer usually come by way of a traffic origin, the ability to drive traffic, and certainly a website and a mobile website is a big part of the puzzle that we will not leave by the wayside. 
Wonderful. So thank you so much, Dom, for sharing your insights, whether you're a fintech or any sort of a startup, digital marketing is key. And I think the case study here is that you need to think about this creatively, right? So if you just keep on talking about the same thing as everybody else, or what is the SEO and things like this, maybe that's uh, that's not uh, too original. But what Dom's doing here is building something new. So that's great. And so I'd like to just conclude on asking you, where can people find you? What's the best way to reach out and find out more about your activities, whether as an ecosystem hub leader or entrepreneur? Sure. The easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn, D-O-M, Einhorn, E-I-N-H-O-R-N. Einhorn stands for unicorn. The incubator is called unicorn with a Q, unicorn incubator.com. If you're interested, if you are a manager of, a, of an amateur sports team or an athlete, you can go to cxsports.io and that's the way you can get a hold of us. All right. Wonderful. And good luck to you, Dom. Thank you so much for having me, Rulov. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.